You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, today we find ourselves in week eight of a set of sermons through uh, this letter called Colossians. And I hope it has been as good for you as it has been for me. I have just so enjoyed our time in this letter. It's been so refreshing. And the Lord has met me in some great, just particular ways. And let me just take a moment to remind you of the origins of this letter. So Epaphras planted the church in Colossae, and uh, Epaphras has come to Paul with an update. He's got the goods, he's got the bads, he, he's just telling Paul what's going on in the life of the church. And um, one of the things that is not good that Epaphras is reporting is that these false teachers have come in. So part of what Paul is doing is addressing these false teachers. And uh, these teachers that have come in, they... They didn't outright deny Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't that sort of an overt denial. What they were doing is they were adding to the person and work of Jesus. And so uh, maybe you could think of it this way. Um, they're looking at the church in Colossae and they're saying, hey church, we know you long deep down in your heart for freedom and fullness. We know every one of you want that. And here is how you get freedom and fullness. It's Jesus plus fill in the blank. That's what they were teaching. It was an addition to Jesus. Their equation was freedom and fullness equals Jesus plus something. So for these false teachers, it was Jesus plus asceticism, uh, denying your body, all sorts of things. It was Jesus plus the worship of angels. Uh, maybe you can think of it this way. It was Jesus plus this combination of uh, Jewish tradition and pagan beliefs. We'll kind of take a mixture of that, add it with Jesus. That's where freedom and fullness will be found. Freedom and fullness is found in Jesus plus something. Paul is writing this letter to look at this young church and say, never put anything in that blank beside Jesus. Freedom and fullness is not found in Jesus plus something. Freedom and fullness is found in Jesus alone. That's what the letter of Colossians is doing. That's what it's about. It's Paul saying that. Now, it's interesting because to correct this problem in this church, Paul doesn't really focus on the problem. There's very few first verses in the, this letter dealing with the actual problem of Jesus plus something that these false teachers are, are saying. How, how Paul addresses the problem is by holding up the person of Jesus. Saying, church, I just want to hold Jesus up and let's just all keep looking at the person of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing for all 95 verses in this letter. Um, I love how Kent Hughes, he's a commentator, I love how he says it. He said, when we study Paul's epistles, we see that each has a dominant theme. So in Romans, he says, it's justification by faith. In Ephesians, it's the mystery of Christ and the church. In Philippians, it's the joy uh, which Christ brings. But in Colossians, it's the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's what this letter is getting at. Paul is holding up Jesus and saying, you don't need anyone but him. He is supreme and he is sufficient. And church, this is the reason we um, have spent time together in this letter. It is so collectively we could all gaze upon the risen Jesus who is above all things. He's before all things. He's better than all things. It's so we could look at that Jesus. Just think about how Paul talks about Jesus. In Colossians chapter one, Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The universe is being held together right now by the person of Jesus. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, and in everything he is preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul is writing to convince us that Jesus is over everything. 
everything. He is holding all things together. He is supreme and sufficient for every one of us in the room. But here's what I love so much about this letter. Paul is writing not just to say Jesus is above everything. Paul is also writing to say Jesus is in everything. Every little detail of your life, Jesus cares about it. Into the smallest areas of your life, Jesus is in those too. He, he cares about those too. He's in our desires. Chapter three, verses one and two. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek, desire, want, run after, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, desire, want, long for the things that are above. He's not just in our desires, he's in our doing. Chapter three, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Jesus actually wants to be in our life in such a way where sin is being put to death. Chapter three, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. He's in our desires. He is in our doing. Uh, but he, Jesus, the, the one who holds all things together, supreme, su sufficient, he, Jesus, is also in our work. That's what Jimmy covered last week. He cares about the way we're interacting with our work, how we do our work. He's in the details of your life all the way into what you're doing at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, how you're working. But he's not just in our desires, in our doing, in our work. It's as if in Colossians 3, Jesus comes through the front door of our home to say he's also in our family. Something as common as a family. He's even into those cracks and those crevices in our life. All the way down into something as commonplace and as normal as a family. And with four concise commands, chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, with four concise commands, Paul addresses the family, the husband and wife, a marriage, and then parent-child, that relationship. With four commands, he comprehensively addresses the family. So we pick it up in verses 18 and 19. And Paul starts with marriage. Now, before we jump into verse 18, I want to just back up and, and let's think for a few minutes about how the scriptures think about marriage. What is a marriage? Think about someone coming to you and asking you that question and you had to define what is a marriage. If you ever had to define that, that term, that word, I hope the first place you think in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 because the Lord defines it for us. The scriptures don't leave it up to us to decide that they tell us, the Bible tells us what a marriage is. Genesis chapter two, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage. The Bible defines what a marriage is. Uh, my friend Ray Ortland puts Genesis 2.24 into plain English, and he defines it this way. He says, marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. There's marriage. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. Now, we live in a day and an age that wants to expand the meaning of marriage to any arrangement between any two people. That, it is a tsunami, it, it is a huge cultural tide and pressure wanting to expand the meaning of marriage to be any arrangement between anyone. But that's not just expanding the meaning of marriage, that is fundamentally redefining marriage. And, and here's the problem with that, marriage is not our idea. We don't own marriage. We didn't create marriage. We didn't come up with marriage. We didn't invent marriage. God did. Marriage sprang from the deep part of God's heart. It's his idea. It's, it's his creation. He is the one who, who made marriage. And because it's God's invention, not ours, God gets to define it, not us. 
He is the one that gets to define what a marriage is. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. But what is marriage for? If that's what marriage is, what is marriage for? Answer according to the scriptures. And you can uh, reference Ephesians 5 for this. Earthly marriages are metaphors of the eternal marriage. That eternal marriage between God and his bride, the church. Earthly metaphors, our earthly marriages exist to be a metaphor for the eternal marriage. To say something about, to show a picture of how God loves his bride, the church. This is the reason marriage exists. Marriage, if you're married in the room or you aspire to marriage one day, marriage, your marriage, if you're married, is meant to point beyond itself to the unbreakable, never stopping, tender, sacrificial, gentle love of Jesus for his people. And then on the other side, our joyful deference, his people, his church, his bride, our joyful deference to him. This is the reason marriage exists. It's not just kind of like a cute add-on to marriage. No, this is the heart of why it is that there is such a thing called marriage. It is meant to point beyond itself to the marriage, the one between Christ and his people. So just think about um, seeing a couple fall in love. Uh, the next time you go to a wedding, think about what you're witnessing at that wedding. You are witnessing a reenactment of the biblical love story. They are retelling the story of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming down to earth, taking on human flesh, pursuing his bride across enemy lines, winning her over with his love, and then committing himself to that bride forever. Every wedding you see is a reenactment of that big biblical story. Maybe we could say it this way. Every marriage, your marriage, my marriage, your marriage exists to tell the truth about the marriage. That's why God has gifted you a marriage, to tell the truth, to say true things about the marriage. So let's stop and linger there for a moment and just ask the question, is your marriage telling the truth about the marriage? Is it saying true things about the marriage, the one between God and his people. Now, we could talk, uh, it's a sermon in and of itself to talk about the ways that we can tell the truth or tell a lie about uh, the marriage with our marriage. Uh, but here's one way you can say a true thing about the marriage with your own marriage is you can stay married. This is one way we tell the truth about how God loves his people. It's by staying married. Now, I know that there are some here this morning, or maybe you're listening online, and the truth is you are on the brink of running, of giving up on your marriage, of turning your back on your marriage, of saying no more. And I just wanna look at you today and say what's at stake is not just your marriage. What's at stake is you saying a true thing about God's marriage to his people, about the marriage. So we as a church family just wanna come around you today and say, don't run out on it. Don't give up on it. Whatever you can do to preserve, to stay in there, to stay married, that's one way we tell the truth about the marriage. And if that's you, don't leave here today without getting people in the know on that, getting that in community. We would love to be a church family who helps you in that, but don't give up on your marriage. That would be like maybe the minimum thing we could say about what it means for your marriage to say a true thing about the marriage but even a better way for your marriage to tell the truth about the marriage is for a husband to selflessly display the loving headship of Jesus and for a wife to mirror the joyful submission of the church to Jesus. That is even a better way for us to tell the truth about a marriage. For the husband to step into his divinely given role, for a wife to step into her divinely given distinct role 
And for a husband and wife to relate to one another in a healthy, God-honoring way, that's an even better way for us to say a true thing about the marriage. And this is where Paul takes us. Look at verse 18. Paul first addresses wives. He has a word to wives. Verse 18. This text shows us the divine and distinct calling of a wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, you don't find that verse on many coffee cups today. Our culture is not real fired up about Colossians 3.18. Our culture scorns the word submission, calling it a bad thing. Where the Bible lifts up that word and calls it a beautiful thing. Now, let me take one step back, and I think this is the first thing that might be helpful for us today as we're looking at verse 18 and considering that word submission. I wanna take a moment to normalize it in all of our lives. Submission is not an abnormal calling in our lives. It is, submission is normative Christianity. It's normative. It, it's not unique to any one person in this room. It is for everyone in this room. You are called by God to submit. It's normal Christianity. Every Christian is called to submit. So think about the various ways that plays out. We are called to submit first and foremost to Jesus. You can't be a Christian without being submitted to Jesus. That's first and foremost. Every Christian is called to submit to Jesus. Um, we're called, every Christian is called to submit to a local group of pastors in a church. Hebrews 13, 7. That's not for a few of us. That is for every single Christian is called to find a group of pastors to submit to. We are all, every single Christian is called to submit to the government. Romans 13. That's not a few of us. That's every single one of us in the room. Christian employees are called to submit to their employers. Colossians 3.22, children are called to submit to and obey their parents. Colossians 3.20. And in a lot of ways, just look at the life of Jesus. Jesus sets the tone for submission. First of all, he is submitted to God the Father. But then he's also submitting himself to the needs of others. The needs of others came before his own. Just read Philippians chapter 2. And Jesus, one of the things he shows us over and over with his life is that in his kingdom, it's an upside down kingdom. In his kingdom, the way up, and it's the only way up, is by getting low, by putting yourself under other people. That's how you lift yourself in the kingdom of God. It's an upside down kingdom. Maybe we could say it this way. The presence of Christ among us puts the fragrance of submission, this quick voluntary spirit of, of servanthood, it puts that spirit of submission into every one of our relationships. It just puts that fragrance into our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, this should be the fragrance of your life, a voluntary sort of quickness to submit in relationships. So again, this is, this is not extraordinary Christianity. This is normative Christianity. Every Christian is called to submit. Now, we're applying it to marriage. This command to submit is a command that is uniquely given to ladies within the confines of marriage. And it is not bad, it is beautiful. It's not demeaning, it is gospel displaying. Now, let me just say a couple of things about this just for a couple of clarifiers. And I wish I had time to do more. We have, um, we have talked about this in multiple other uh, passages when we've come across them, Ephesians 5, when we worked through the book of uh, Ephesians. When we got to 1 Peter 3, we have worked through this passage in detail, this idea in detail. Uh, we did a whole set of sermons on the family where we worked through this in detail. So I can't say everything today, but let me just put a few qualifiers out there. First of all, submission does not mean a wife is unequal to her husband in value, capacity, or competency. Most men in this room would like me gladly affirm my wife is way more competent than I am, right? Uh, so so it, it's not saying that. A difference in role does not mean a difference in worth. That's one clarifier. Uh, clarifier number two, submission does not mean unquestioned agreement. Wives, your ultimate authority is not your earthly husband, 
but Jesus, your eternal husband. That's your ultimate authority. So submission to your husband stops where disobedience to Jesus starts. So Jesus is your ultimate authority. So with that said, what is sub, uh, submission? Uh, let me just give you kind of a working definition. Submission is the cheerful willingness to follow the one God has placed in authority over you. The cheerful willingness to follow the one God has placed in authority over you. That is normative Christianity. Every one of us in the room has to wrestle with that and apply that in the appropriate context. The cheerful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. So submission is cheerful. It's more than external behavior. It is an attitude before it's an action. It's um, a mentality, a disposition that says, this is what my heart longs to do. I want to do this. So it's cheerful. It's a cheerful willingness to follow or to support or to help accomplish or to encourage or to enrich or to be easy to lead. It's a willingness to, to put the final decision, the context of marriage, in the lap of your husband. Now, on the opposite side of, of uh, to follow would be to be edgy and resistant and to be fault-finding and to have this mentality that you, you always have to have it your way. That's the opposite uh, of a cheerful willingness to follow. Submission is the cheerful willingness to follow the one God has placed in authority over you. A husband didn't put himself there. God put him there. Submission. The cheerful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. Listen to Ray Ortland talk about this. Here's how he says it. He says, welcoming her husband's headship is not reducible to a set of legalistic rules. Christian marriage is like a waltz, not a military march. By trusting the Lord and embracing her calling, a wife empowers her husband as no one else on the face of the earth can do. She is so secure in Christ that she is no longer jealous to establish her identity separate from her husband. She understands how profound it is to be one flesh with him and gives him her whole heart and her practical support. So wives in the room, does that sound like you? Is that the way you're relating to your husband? And just as some practical encouragement toward that, submission to your husband is an act of submission to Jesus. And this goes for any of us in the room. We will never be submitted in the appropriate ways to who God calls us to submit to apart from being submitted to Jesus. So, so it starts with humbling ourselves and putting ourselves below Jesus, under the, the rule of Jesus. And to all of our wives in the room, your joyful willingness to follow the leadership of your husband says more about God's place in your life than it does your husband. It's saying more about how you're relating vertically to God. When you submit to your husband, regardless of his worth or if he deserves it, regardless of all those things, but when you submit to your husband, you are saying to God, God, I, I trust you. I trust you. The wrong question to be asking is, is, is my husband reliable? That's the wrong question. The right question is, is God who has placed him in my life, is God reliable? And if our answer is yes to God, God, I trust you, then we'll figure out the appropriate ways to follow our husband, to interact with our husband. So ladies, does, does this describe you? Is this the posture? Is this the demeanor? Is this the mentality with which you're relating to your husband? So Paul has a word to wives, and then he has a word to husbands. To husbands. Look at verse 19. Husbands... Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives. So as helpers, wives have the unique privilege of showing off the church's joyful deference to the love and authority of Jesus. Now flip it. As heads, husbands have this unique privilege of showing off Jesus' sacrificial love for his bride, the church. 
each have a divine, distinct calling to show the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so husbands are called to be this visible representation of Jesus's authority over and his love for his bride, the church. So, so husbands love your wives. Now, how would a husband go about loving his wife? Well, a husband is intended by God to take his cues from Jesus. So we just are meant to look at Jesus and then see how Jesus has loved us and then what we have experienced in the loving heart of Jesus toward us, we then extend toward and express toward our wives. So how has Jesus loved us? Well, we could say a lot of things about it. Let me just give you a couple. Jesus loved us by giving himself. Jesus gave himself. This is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. How do we love our wives? As, just, just reflecting and, and what we have taken from God, we are now giving to other people. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus gave, him, literally gave his life for us. So husbands give themselves. If you're a husband in the room, I want you to look at me for a moment. Just look at me in the eye for just a moment. The calling that God has put on your life as a husband is to die. That's the calling. To give your life away in a million acts of sacrificial love. God has called you to die so that your wife and your family can live and flourish and step into everything that God would have them be. Being a husband is not an easy thing. It is a call to die. And this is the way of the gospel, isn't it? When Jesus is thinking about his own life, he talks like this about it in John 12, 24. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... If it will fall into the ground and die, it bears much fruit. So husbands, in the same way, the call that God has put on your life is to plant your life in the ground of your marriage. To plant your life right there and to die there. That is the call of a husband. To, to insert your life in the ground of your marriage and to give your life for it. To die, to serve, to, to get low, the lowest in your home, to, to die. That's what God has called you to do so that your family can flourish and much fruit can be born. That's the calling for a husband. So husbands, where is God calling you to die? Where is he asking you to die? Maybe it's to your insecurity. Maybe it's to your grudges and unforgiveness. Maybe it's to your selfishness. Where is God calling you to die? To just look like Jesus, to, to, to receive from Jesus that calling and just to follow Jesus down the road of planting your life in your marriage and dying there. Where is Jesus asking you to die? Jesus gave himself, so husbands give themselves. How did Jesus love us? Well, Jesus initiates. He initiates. Um, why are you a Christian? You ever thought about that? If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, why is that? There's a lot of things we could say about it, but here is the biggest thing we could say about it. You are a Christian because the initiating love of God melted your heart, thawed your heart, and rescued you. That's the biggest thing we'd say about it. It's 1 John 4, where uh, John says, we love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. He initiates. He comes and thaws our hearts and rescues us and wins us over and saves us. Yet we love because he first loved us. Jesus initiates, so husbands initiate. Husbands initiate by moving the family toward everything God would want in the life of their family and away from the things that Jesus would not want in the life of their family. Uh, years ago, one of my favorite pastors was on a panel and someone asked him, what, what does it mean for a husband to step into headship in the context of the home? What, what would that look like? And, and the pastor looked back and said, you know, I think it's a husband saying, let's a whole lot just saying that word all the time. 
Let's pray. Let's read the Bible. Let's do family devotions. Let's give generously. Let's serve. Let's go to church. Let's date. Let's share Jesus with people who don't know him. Let's cultivate our friendship. Let's play and make some great memories as a family. Let's. It's just saying let's all the time. It's just initiating. So husbands, take a moment to think about your marriage. Is there distance in your marriage? Unaddressed issues, coldness, hurts, does it just feel stuck? If that's true, God is calling you to initiate, to take the first step. Maybe that first step is inviting people in to your marriage, getting help for your marriage, being the first to forgive in your marriage. That being the first to, 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 to not hold that grudge in your marriage. Where is Jesus asking you to initiate, to make the first move? Jesus gave himself, so husbands give themselves. Jesus initiates, so husbands initiate. And Jesus cherishes us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Zephaniah 3.17. It's just a beautiful verse. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's amazing. And God doesn't just love his sons and daughters. He doesn't just love his bride, the church. He loves loving his bride. He, he loves to love you. And he doesn't just say, I love you. He is working and doing everything he can to help you feel loved by him in the deepest parts of your heart to actually feel loved by God. That, that's what he wants for you. This is what he's working to do all the time in your life. Jesus cherishes us. So husbands cherish their wives. To cherish your wife is the opposite of what you find in verse 19, of being harsh with them. To cherish your wife is the opposite. Some uh, translations uh, translate that word harsh as to be embittered against your wife. To cherish is the opposite of that. So husbands, uh, let me give you some homework. I would love, I'm gonna ask every husband in the room uh, today, when you go home, uh, to sit across from your wife, to look her in the eyeballs, and to ask her, do you feel cherished by me? Do you feel valued, thought about, important, prized? Do you feel cherished by me? If the answer is yes, then y'all should celebrate. But if the answer is no, why don't you ask her for help? What, what can I do to communicate that to you? I want you to feel cherished. How, what can I do? How, how can I help with that? That's, that's homework for every husband in the room today is to ask that question to your wife, to cherish her. This is what it looks like to love your wife. That's his word to husbands. Now, Paul has a word to children. Look at verse 20, to children. Children. Obey your parents. Every parent says amen to that. <laughs> Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, this command in Colossians 3 verse 20 falls under the fifth commandment, right? Ten commandments, the fifth one. Honor your father and your mother. It's a subset of that. So what does it mean to honor your father and your mother? When you think about the word honor, it's a mixture of two words. It is obedience on one side and reverence on the other. That reverence, to give a weight toward or to express importance uh, toward. So obedience and reverence. Now, the younger you are as a child, uh, the more honor uh, skews toward obedience. That, that's the way honor is primarily shown. The older you get, the more it skews toward reverence, to give weight to, honor to, uh, respect toward uh, your mother and your father. So Paul is using the word children in this text. So Paul has in view uh, this side of the scale, the obedient side of the scale, which probably means he is talking to people who are still under the roof of their parents. Their parents are still paying the bills, making their life work, 
doing all of those things uh, for their, their child. So in that context, if you're, if you're living at home, just roughly speaking in our culture, that's probably like a 20 and down sort of a scenario. So if you're living at home, your parents are paying for your life, all of those things, Paul is saying here, obeying Jesus starts with obeying your parents. Obeying Jesus starts with obeying your parents. And it is amazing. If you just take a step back from this scripture and you look throughout the New Testament, it is amazing the weight upon which this command is sort of given by the Lord. This is a very serious command in the Bible. Uh, Last night, Eva and I, my youngest, we were sitting on the couch and we were talking about this, children obey your parents. And then I flipped over to Romans chapter one and we read together Romans 1, 29 and 30. And this is where Paul is talking about people that God has given over uh, to just the wickedness of their heart. And Paul says this about them. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, of murder, of strife, of deceit, of maliciousness. They are uh, gossips, slanders, haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful. They are inventors of evil. And then we got to the last phrase right here and Eva's like, (gasps) disobedient to parents. Yeah, it's like, that's amazing, isn't it? That right next to murderers, right next to inventors of evil is disobedient to parents. That that is the weight upon which uh, God puts upon this particular commandment. Uh, let me say it this way, okay? If, if, you're, if you're in the category of like that living in, uh, under your parents' roofs, under their authority still in that direct sort of a way, they're making your life work. L- let me say it this way. If you don't learn to obey your parents, there is a great chance that every other relationship in your life is going to be broken. That's how important this is. This is the training ground through which that you learn how to obey God, you learn how to live with other people in a right way. Augustine, an early church father, he said it this way, and he's really just emphasizing the importance of the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father, with a rhetorical question. He says, if a person fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? And the answer, of course, is no. There is no one he will spare. He will not give appropriate honor to anyone or anything if he doesn't learn how to give it here. But if you're a child, again, this is under the authority, direct authority of your parents. If you want to know what pleases Jesus, Paul shows you what pleases Jesus. Obey your parents. Why? For this pleases the Lord. It brings a smile upon the face of God when he sees it. It delights the heart of God when he sees it. And look at this phrase. He puts this little phrase right in here with it. He says, obey in everything. Not in some things, but in everything. Now, of course, there are boundaries around our obedience. Anytime obedience to our parent would make us disobey God, we should say no to that. But in, as, but in a humble posture, with a heart that's saying, I want to obey you, but I can't in this. So, so yes, there are appropriate boundaries around it. If you think your parents are doing something unwise, you can do what we just call it around our house. You can make a godly appeal with the right posture, right? With the right attitude, you can state your case. But, but we should feel the force of Paul's words here, the force of this command. Obey in everything. So if you're a child in the room, this is a chance for you to ask the question. Look back over the last week of your life. Does this characterize how you relate to your parents? Look back over the last month. Is this this just characteristic of what it looks like for you to relate to mom and dad? Children obey in everything because this pleases the Lord. If not, this is a chance for you to repent today. This is a chance for you to confess that to God and to ask for forgiveness for God and your parents. What a wonderful day to do that. And then Paul has a word to parents. To parents. Parenting matters. The scriptures, and you can just read Judges chapter 2 if you want to see it. The scriptures show that the only thing needed for, the only thing one generation needs to do for the next generation. So one generation for the next generation to be on their faces worshiping false gods. 
the only thing this generation needs to do for that generation to be doing that is nothing. Is nothing. It's just to sort of take your hands off the controls and just let your kids do their thing. That's the only thing needed for your children to be, the next generation to be on their faces worshiping false gods. Uh, east of Eden, every person in every generation, when they come out of the womb, they are spring-loaded to reject Jesus. This is why every person in every generation has to be re-evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures show us over and over again that the primary link between this generation and the next generation is the parent-child link. That is the primary way the good news of Jesus goes generation to generation, the parent-child link. The job of a parent is to stand between their child and the ruin their heart wants and to say, no, don't do that. Come and follow me as I follow Jesus. That's the job of a parent. And Paul gives some direction to parents. In Ephesians 6, he says, you're to bring your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is reactive, right? Discipline is um, what happens every time your child disobeys. Discipline is needed. Discipline is not an inconvenience for you as a parent. It is an opportunity for you to actually parent your child. Right? This is discipline. Every time your child disobeys is an opportunity for you to pastor them, to, to parent them. That's discipline. And then he says instruction. So where discipline is reactive, instruction is proactive. It's family devotions. It's reading a chapter of the Bible together and talking it out. It's praying together. It's working out the sermon. Any areas that they're confused about a sermon or what the Bible's teaching. It's connecting Jesus to their everyday life. It's modeling a vibrant walk with Jesus. That's all the sort of proactive instruction that we're giving our kids. So parenting matters. But Paul has a warning for parents. Look at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, the word fathers is also translated parents or parents in some places. So for sure, the application is for both mothers and fathers. The application definitely goes both ways. But I agree that the translators have it right when they're saying fathers. Paul seems to have a sense of, I want to especially highlight a danger for dads, for fathers. When he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Yes, Paul wants us to parent our children. Parenting matters. But he wants us to parent in a way that does not provoke. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents. That gives an amazing amount of authority to parents, doesn't it? Children, obey your parents in everything. That's a tremendous amount of authority. Verse 21 is a warning against the misuse of that legitimate authority. Saying, parents, you better be careful. You're going to one day stand before God and, and give an account in how you use that God-given authority. And Paul warns parents, in particular dads, says, do not treat your kids in a way where they become hopelessly discouraged, where their spirits are broken, where they lose confidence in Jesus. And listen, there are countless ways to uh, provoke your kid and discourage your children. That's a whole, again, a whole sermon in itself. Explosive anger will do that. Inconsistency will do that. Hypocrisy will do that. Overprotecting your kids, always saying no to everything. That will do that. Being overly critical of your kids, that will do that. Indifference towards your kids, that will do that. I, I read a statistic years ago that said the average dad spends 37 seconds a day actually addressing, looking eyeball to eyeball at his kids. 37 seconds a day. Indifference will do that. An unwillingness to own our sin and repent of it will do that. When I look at verse 21, I, I feel like what it is is an invitation from the Lord to parents, and in particular to dads, to think about the culture of the relationships they have with their children. To Think about the culture. Um, okay, if you're a parent, look at me. I, I want to make sure you get this. Have you, have you ever just sat down and asked the question, I wonder what it feels like to be my kid? 
I wonder what that feels like to be on the other side of this relationship. I wonder what my son feels about our relationship. I wonder what it feels like to be my daughter. I wonder what that feels like. Dad, both parents, this would, that would be a great question to ask your kids. That would be a great question to ask your spouse so that you have insight about what it feels like to be one of your kids. But be curious about that. As parents, we want to raise our kids to love Jesus, to be prepared to move out into the world with hope and confidence in Jesus. But we want our kids to be ready for the rest of their life to say yes to everything Jesus would put before them. We want all of those things for our kids. And if we're putting unnecessary obstacles in the way of that, provoking them, discouraging them, don't we want to know that? Don't we want to have a sense of that and correct that and make sure we're not doing that? See, this is an invitation to be curious about the relationship you have with your kids, what it feels like to be your son or, or your daughter. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I'll finish here. Years ago, Laura and I were at a marriage conference when a pastor um, put a, uh, a phrase on the screen with a blank. And the phrase was this, your church is only as strong as your blank. And then he invited us all to think about what fits in the blank. And gosh, I just immediately started thinking about all sorts of things. Maybe the leadership of your church, maybe it's the humility of the church, maybe it's uh, the faith of your church, maybe it's the theological sort of fidelity of your church. I mean, there's all sorts of things you could put in that blank, but he looked back at us and said, uh, here's the answer I wanna make sure you see clearly. Your church is only as strong as your families. It is only as strong as the families that make up the church. And he went on to say that I don't need to go talk to your leaders to know how strong your church is. I don't necessarily even need to get on your website and look at your statement of faith to see how strong your church is. What I need, all I need to do is take about 10 of your families, sit down with them for an evening and watch how that husband and wife relate. I just need to watch how they're parenting. And I'm going to know everything I need to know about the health and strength of your church. And at the time, I had no idea that a church plant would be in my future. I had no idea that was coming. But I definitely know on that day, the Lord put a desire in my heart for a church that would be a greenhouse for families so that men and women could grow up into faithful followers of Jesus, knowing that some of those men and women God would gift marriage to. And for those men that they would grow up into faithful husbands, those ladies would grow into godly women, godly wives, and knowing that some of those marriages he's gonna gift kids to. And those godly husbands would then grow into godly fathers, those godly wives would grow into godly moms and together as a team, they would be godly pastors in their homes. A church that would be doing that. Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor several hundred years ago and he was committed to seeing that happen, that little greenhouse happen in his church. So he spent so much time helping families thrive and become more of what the Lord would have them be. And he is right to say this, if you want to see revival in your community, and gosh, I hope we do. I hope that there is a longing in each of our heart for God to visit this area, the Midlothian, South Dallas area with a special work of grace. If you want to see revival in your community, that starts with revival in the home. So let's invite it. Let's ask for it. Let's be ready to say yes to everything Jesus would need from us to see that happen. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to listen to the Lord, for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful, to wipe away the things that would not be helpful. You know, one of the things that I love about Jesus is he doesn't pick us up where we should be. He picks us up by his grace right where we are in our failures, 
in our stumblings, in our worst moments. He picks us up there. So if you're a wife and you need to be picked up where you are today, not where you should be, but where you are, Jesus is ready to do that. And if you're a husband and you need to be picked up where you are, not where you should be, but where you are, he's ready to do that. And for all the children in the room, he's ready to meet you there. For every parent in the room, in all of your failings, every time you've fallen in front of your kids, he's ready to meet you there today. And by his grace to empower a new you, he's called you to these things. He's empowered you for these things. He's made you for these things. So, oh God, would you help us step into them? Would you help us today? In the particular places that every one of us need help today, God, would you meet us with your grace? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen. Why don't you stand with us and we're going to sing. And as you're doing that, here's the truth for some of us in the room. Your step today is to step into the marriage, the one between Jesus and his people. So if you haven't stepped into the marriage, this could be your wedding day. This could be your moment where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon him and Jesus rescues you and he brings you into his family. This could be your wedding day. So there where you are, you can call out to God in the best way you know how and the God of the universe will come into your life today and rescue you. So make sure you take that step if that's you. Let's sing together.